10. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm switching back to clustering. We have Benson uh, last week to talk about parallel computations. Um, I have uh, more materials on parallel computations uh, uh, that I can then go over some of the aspects quicker. And uh, yeah, so at the moment we we'll go back to the clustering topic. Easiest is to visualize and understand clustering when we talk about two-dimensional data. Uh, meaning we have two coordinates for every data point and x, y points are there to be clustered. So the two main uh, methods, uh, two classical methods that we discussed was uh, hierarchical clustering, just observing that the closest elements should be in the same cluster. Okay? And then finding the smallest, uh, closest pairs, and then starting to merge the clusters together. So initially there are sort of singleton clusters, but then starting to merge them together. So if we want to merge them together in here, we have to recalculate distance for every other cluster to this merged cluster. Right? And we have the choice to, uh, to define the distance in various ways, for example, distance from this point either as smallest distance of the two, as largest distance of the two, average distance, etc. Right? You remember this. <coughs> the other technique was, was k-means. which uh, I'm, I'm making it really easy at the moment, which starts with uh, some arbitrary idea about the clusters, three potential clusters in the data. And once we have the three, uh, three clusters in the data, we can divide the space between between the three points in, into Voronoi diagram so that every point belongs to the closest cluster center, right? This is the closest, therefore this must belong to that cluster, right? But this is not very good clustering. Uh, we randomly guessed the cluster centers and we got this situation. So instead, now we can look at this cluster alone and say that, oh, cluster center should not be there. Cluster center should be clearly in the center of gravity of the cluster or the most central point. So center of the gravity, we, we have six, seven elements. Somewhere in the center of gravity is probably somewhere maybe in here, right? So this will be updated. This will have four 
and five elements, so the center of gravity will probably be somewhere in here. And this one, only one element in there, this center will be there, right? So now we are back to step one. We have three cluster centers. We started with a random guess. Now we have slightly better guess. And now we draw the borders again. Uh, between this and this, there is this line. Between this and this, there is this line. Between this and this, there will be this line. And uh, yeah, yeah, okay. So it, it, the center of gravity will uh, move further there. The center of gravity will be moving somewhere in here. The center of gravity, this one, will move there, so we iterate between the two aspects, uh, dividing the space to the closest uh, cluster center, and then recalculating the cluster center to the new situation, back and forth, back and forth, until it stabilizes. Uh, see, these points are still belonging to this cluster, while obviously they, in the next round, uh, they should uh, they should become closer to this new center in there, and then it stabilizes. So ultimately we have three uh, clusters, and the center is identified in this k-means process. The initial choice of the cluster centers may have an effect. So maybe this process is needed to iterate, to repeat a couple of times, with different, uh, with different seed situation, or maybe uh, it's better to take subsample of the data, do something like hierarchical clustering, and decide, okay, roughly we will have three large clusters, why don't we select cluster centers to represent these three clusters from the hierarchical clustering of the subsample of the data, much smaller data, right? And then figure out where might the centers be, and then let this k-means work from the initial good guess. Uh, so these, this, uh, yeah, so that was k-means. and also medoid. Medoid identifies the median or one of the existing data points. I was saying center of gravity, but instead of center of gravity, we just say, okay, one of these points is the most central, right? To work only with the original data points and not to invent any, any averages between two uh, nominal values, for example. What is the average between house and the tree? What's on the picture? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, so these are the these are the two uh, methods which have. You can argue what is the speed. You have all n square distances to find the smallest distances, updated distances. So this one will work. Um, n squared times something, but 
not by too much worse than n squared. And this one works with the k centers. For every point, we need to calculate distances to k centers in each round. So k centers times n distances times d rounds. And the, di and the distance depends on how many attributes in the data. In here, just two, but it could be thousands. Uh, okay, so, so these are the two basic things. And on this picture, the two things have been uh, put together in a different way. Not the standard. I said that you take a sample, you make hierarchical clustering, you get a better seed for k-means. But on there, it was done vice versa. You just took k-means to rather large number of clusters. And then on top of that, average, uh, like each cluster has 200, 300, 400 elements. Each row is representing the average of all these 288 objects, genes in this case. And uh, k-means run is relatively quicker, and then hierarchical uh, clustering is needed to do only for small data, because we already have got rid of the original k points. Uh, okay, so, so that basically repeated what we did last time. Uh, so this was hierarchical. Uh, today, oh, um, the, the idea of doing k means with missing attributes came from uh, from Sven Lau. Sort of proposed the idea that what happens when you one data point could have long vector of attributes describing one data point. Imagine how many attributes is needed to describe your health data in the clinic. How many different attributes you have. And the other person, they have different set of attributes, or some attributes are missing. Maybe the blood pressure was not measured for that person. So, Sven uh, proposed at least attempt something of k-means with the missing attributes. So within the cluster, you may have, you may define the cluster center with the existing attributes and then calculate the, calculate the distances on the existing attributes, but somehow ignore the missing ones. So it's kind of playing with the distance measure and the data points in the cluster. So, um, this is the example from the Nature Reviews Genetics, sort of like different patients have different diagnoses, different medications that they receive, different laboratory values, different demographic situation, male, female, age, uh, region of birth, etc. And then one can do this uh, sort of which diagnosis occurred together. Uh, what is the clustering, which patients are more similar to each other than the others, and then ultimately the question is observing similar cases, many enough, you can do some predictions 
what will happen to the new patients that starts to get to the same trajectory of the disease. So predicting the disease uh, trajectory somehow, the, the, the potential progress, future progress of the disease, or select which treatments, which medications, which procedures should be best suited for this group of patients. Um, and this area is, is only uh, going to be re revolutionized by these kind of big data analytics. Uh, okay. Um, the, today's topic is uh, we're going to talk about uh, some other different ways to do the clustering. One is uh, kind of inspired from the neural networks, but it's different type of neural network, self-organizing map. Um, and then we talk about uh, density-based clustering and, and uh, go to seriation topics. Any questions about this very basic in here? Is all this what I described crystal clear? Now I have a choice. Either everything is uh, crystal clear or you didn't understand anything and you, you don't dare to say that. Uh, okay, let's let's go to the cell processing map. I will use this uh, this part in here. Has any one of you heard about self-organizing maps, coherent maps? Okay. And I have received feedback from previous years that it may be uh, hard to understand until you try to do it yourself. So I'm, I'm trying to improvise now in here. Um, there are two representations, well, two ways how how I have seen the representation of the songs. One is that we make a grid. We make the artificial layout of the uh, clustering output, clustering end result. So in this case it's uh, 4 by 5 20 neurons on the map. And now, what happens is that whatever the data points we have, I have no idea whether this should be a good example or not, but this is the original data. And there will be millions of data points, eventually, right? We want to map all of these on those 20 clusters. Uh, 
initially we don't have any idea where, where the clusters will, will be, right? So what kind of we can uh, what we kind of can do is uh, I'm just going to present the Too many data points in here. Let's say that these 20 clusters I randomly generated very clear points in the space. Yeah. We want that yet yeah, something similar. We want to represent each cluster is represented by one example from here, like cluster center, right? And then every point ends up in the nearest center. This is clearly not a very good clustering for this data, right? Uh, so what happens is you randomly you randomly fetch one data point, being this one, right? And you ask, okay, I have this data point. Which of those is most similar? In here, you can see I took this one. The closest one is that, right? So this one has to end up in here. I had we had different representation, but we this clearly ends up in here. But it is not very similar, right? So what we now try to do next is, okay, if this has to go there, we better do something with this cluster center. So we we can move that quite quite a lot towards this direction. This data point belongs to there, therefore let's move this one that direction. And not only this one, but also the neighborhood. Yeah? So the, the, the grid that was looking beautiful in here gets distorted, sort of this one moves there, this one moves there by a smaller extent, this one moves by a smaller extent, and even this one moves. So I have this kind of grid structure, right? I have distorted original cluster centers. I have updated this value towards the new data point. And I have I have updated the neighborhood also to resemble this cluster more. The new data point comes in maybe Well, maybe it is just this one, so that distorts uh, this picture a little bit, the grid. And one by one, starting to add, so maybe this one is then moved, then the cluster center jumps uh, quite far in there, and the other one's in there. So, starting from the random position, iterating, uh, fetching random data point, putting on map, updating the respective neural so that the new data value uh, changes this representative in here to resemble more the new data value right? and also the neighborhood. So what this change uh, does is that that at the end on the, on the map there will be regions of similar clusters, right? 
So this point collects every this this neuron collects represents every point that falls in that cluster, but its neighbors will be quite similar to this one. It's kind of an arbitrary process. It's self-organizing map entirely. It starts from some random initial configuration and it starts to adjust to the data. You get the idea. So, uh, so this is the grid of cluster centers. New value is most similar to this uh, data point, uh, this cluster center in there. So we change the cluster representations uh, to resemble the new point and the neighborhood as well. And in here you think in two dimensions, but it could be high dimensional space. It could try to bring this network in different ways out, right? So you don't see the third dimension, you don't see the depth, because we require everything to be mapped on these two dimensions. Uh, so we have the ultimate uh, uh, way how we want to see the data and in this case I guess the, these clusters will end up in there these cluster centers sort of probably will create a map that is somehow uh, creating a grid I don't know there is one, two, three, four so every, every, every time there will be Or etc. Like like this grid, right? So the maps, these cluster centers will be divided through the data points somewhere in this data space. Similar faces. I'm not so sure how, if they are similar. They end up in nearby neurons. Uh, this is very different image. Ends up in different neuron. You can take text documents apply the text similarity measures, do they share the same words? If they do, are the words that they share very common or infrequent? If they share the same infrequent words, they must be having very specific terminology, which is specific to those documents. So measures of similarity between documents can take into account the frequency of words, but who cares about the frequency of A's and D's and on and go, etc. You only care about specific terminology, like SOM, not very frequent uh, acronym. So if documents share the same uh, concepts, they end up in the same document maps, uh, which they called semantic maps. Just the idea, you have the data and you map it over to the self-organizing map. Teuvo Kohonen is the guy who uh, Kind of introduced the idea. Uh, no, actually, 73 was introduced, and Kohonen kept working on this uh, uh, in 1980s. 70s and 80s were the period when all kinds of research on neural networks was almost killed off. Uh, because 
What, what is a neuron in your brain? Mathematical It's kind of a cell that has connections to other cells from where it takes inputs. For example, pain. This one receives pain, this one receives pain, this one receives pain signal. In here we calculate the sum of all the weights and if this is greater than some threshold, whatever, then it will fire the positive signal out to the next neuron. You have the input, that you have the neuron that takes uh, inputs, applies some weighting of the inputs, they can be arbitrary weights, when the threshold is exceeded, it fires. So that the next neuron can take this data as input and some other inputs from other places. But the reason why neural networks research was stopped was that, hey, but this one neuron cannot do much. It can only calculate the, the if there are multiple inputs, you can think of this as, as multiple attributes, as uh, in high dimensional space, one, two, three, four, five, five dimensional space, and then calculate some sort of uh, sum, and then say that is this on one side of the hyperplane or the other side of the hyperplane? Just a single hyperplane, right? And the problem is that single hyperplane cannot calculate complicated stuff like exclusive or. Yeah, exclusive or I think is if both are positive then it's negative, if both are, both are negative then it's negative, if both are if one is positive the other is negative then its output is positive. So complicated stuff like this cannot be represented by a single uh, plane separating the goods from the bats. So that was called a perceptron and then there was a paper that first one single perceptron cannot do much. Indeed, of course it can't. And then the entire field was unpopular for 10, 20 years. Until, of course, you can put many neurons. And now that if you hear about that, you can do multi-layer uh, neural networks. And you can do deep mind type deep learning where you have like billions, millions of neurons, and these millions of neurons will organize uh, inputs, generate concepts. Like in here, it's slightly different way to understand the neuron uh, similarity, but one neuron, in a way, represents one single concept by some uh, typical characteristic of that concept. And then when, whenever the new data point comes in, it looks associates with the memory, aha, it's most associated to that node, therefore it must be in this cluster. The new image you see, oh, it resembles Jennifer Aniston, it's a, it ends up in your brain in the Jennifer Aniston neuron, with all the different parameter shapes, uh, different hair, all the, all, everything about Jennifer Aniston. It, it's, it's not a random comparison because the discussion in the 
in the brain. Research is kind of asking for concept like Jennifer Aniston. Is there one single neuron that knows everything about that? I bet you each one of you has lots of images about Jennifer Aniston, if you think hard, or maybe not so hard even. Is that one neuron, or is it distributed throughout your brain somehow? So, where is the concept? In the self-organizing map, the concepts are represented by these neurons. It's also called associative array or associative map. So one node somehow associates to one concept. And concept is described by some kind of representative, typical representative of that concept. And whenever you next side try to map, okay, which one is the most similar? Oh, it's this one. You do distance calculation goal and then you map it there. Uh, so self-organizing maps or Gohonen maps or associative arrays, they talk all this all the same thing. It's lattice of neurons or nodes, as I described it here, and one of them just wins, only one wins. One neuron is most similar to this new uh, object. This one is activated, as well as its neighborhood. The neighborhood will be kind of activated or made similar. And then it just self-adapts throughout the process. Uh, so if you map new object to this one, it has different weights, different representative vector in here. You change the representative vector to resemble the new data point, and also the neighborhood uh, gets from yellow into red, you see this orange around there. So the, everything around this will be becoming more similar to this center of this uh, neuron. Uh, then you take data like uh, uh, the country, uh, country names, the, the codes, and you can take World Bank statistics, 39 indicators from World Bank statistics. You can start throwing the 39 attributes from the self-organizing map, and uh, you can see the grid in here is slightly uh, well, hexagonal, slightly different layout, but roughly basically the same, x, y. And then you start having clusters of Bolivia, Brazil, Salvador, Australia, Canada, and US, Denmark, Great Britain, Norway, uh, Iran, Pakistan, and uh, I don't really doubt what is this, Syria, perhaps, uh, Yugoslavia, uh, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, oh, this is 1992, I think Czechoslovakia was still there, uh, Hungary, Poland, Portugal, and like a region around this somehow is similar. Not only one cluster, but the, the neighborhood. But it is not very specific how, how big the neighborhood is. Yeah. And since there are 39, 39 indicators, it's taking 39 dimensional data and mapping it somehow to two dimensions. You would hope that those countries that are similar 
in the 39 indicators, they are similar close on the map, and those that are far are also far on the map. Uh, this kind of a, this method to take high dimensional data and mapping, mapping it to two dimensions while preserving maximal amount of original distances. The far away things should remain far, the nearby things should stay uh, close, uh, is this multi-dimensional scaling to two dimensions, for example, for three dimensions, so that somebody can actually visualize and, and visually explore the data. Uh, so self-organizing map is one way to achieve this clustering where similar things end up in similar regions, but it doesn't entirely say that the far and far, they really have to be far from each other. So it's kind of a little bit arbitrary mapping through this self-organization process. And of course it will depend on the order by which you fetch randomly data. You fetch randomly data, you calculate distances, you map, you change a little bit. You take another one, you map, you change distances. So you get the training cycle is very clear. You, you take, train, 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 and you get your solution. And of course, uh, distance measures apply. The easiest is to do the Euclidean distance uh, over these 39 indicators, for example. Or maybe some, uh, some values are missing, so then something has to replace the missing values. The neighborhood can be defined by different measures. So is it my immediate neighborhood? How much should I change those that are further away? How much should I change the ones that are close? Different uh, learning rate. Well, yeah, the neighborhood uh, distance. This is my winner. And how far is the how far are the other nodes? I only apply half of the half of the change, right? If you are two hops away, then I only apply ten percent, right? Some sort of function to tell how large area you will affect neighborhood um, and by how much. And this by how much in the beginning, like in genetic algorithm, you may decide in the beginning to learn quicker and then just slow down, stabilize this thing to smaller changes towards the end of the cycle. You don't want to change too radically uh, after some period. So these two parameters could be adjusted. Uh, this is binary, vector, binary vectors of, of uh, different types of animals. They are Small, medium, big. They have two legs, four legs. They have. Do they have hair or not? Do they have hooves? Caveat. Uh, male. Uh, mane. Luck, I think. Lions and horses have the mane. The the luck. Yeah. Um, different different uh, binary vectors, and then when you start likes to hunt, run, fly, or swim. So some may like to swim and, is there anybody that swims and, yeah, flies and swims, goose, geese. Geese, swim, and fly. And then you map them on the, on the map, you get the 
bird creatures, the, the friendly animals, not so friendly animals in, in these different regions of the self-organizing map. Concept maps, web documents, that was paper that they published the uh, uh, Helsinki University of Technology, Teuvokohonen people, taking uh, discussions from the Usenet groups, um, different uh, discussion groups, topic mining, kind of, and highlighting the words that are frequent in those clusters, talking about curves, programmer, engines, signals, mining, then zooming into mining, uh, mining, analysts, and needing exploration, interactions, packages, sort of like data mining uh, kind of things. Uh, narrow fuzzy encoding. So you can somehow take data, let them arbitrarily organize themselves on this uh, self-organizing map, and then highlight what might be the common characteristic of all documents and ending up in this node. You could do even something like bird clouds, right? What are the frequent, what are the, what are the common unfrequent birds that are common in here, right? What characterizes this cluster? Uh, okay, so this roughly now covered the self-organizing maps. Not exactly, uh, because uh, I have also but this map you can somehow do different shapes, right? Um, different types of grids. Um, I know one case where the people have implemented this uh, map in a single dimension. And actually even in the way that they are numbered from 1 to n, n being the number of data points. So that every data point ends up on this single dimensional space. Exactly one error. And maybe only this one error will have that, that error will have only one instance, right? But the trick is that the neighborhood depending how you define the neighborhood, how far, how many hops away, all of those will resemble, if you update this one, also these ones will be more similar to this one, right? So the similar objects end up nearby in this one-dimensional self-organizing map. I bet there are some implementation details that have to be figured out. But that's kind of clustering I have I have seen in the tools. Like hierarchical clustering, you can then see show the, the order. You start from there and you just show the entire order of the of the objects. Uh, and if the if the object is uh, is um, okay. I did not have. I did not have. If the object is image and one line in here corresponds to red, green, blue signal, and the 
shuffle the rows, then maybe the maybe the disordering somehow brings up the something that is close to the original image. Maybe. Not every image can be arrowized like that. Just get some feeling. Because to take from here, to take this and convert it into linear order is kind of tricky. In here, you start immediately with the linear order, and then it's just read out on the linear order from here. Uh, okay, so we looked at hierarchical clustering, uh, introduced visualizations, k-means, self-organizing maps. You can start combining ideas like I did k-means and a hierarchical, combine self-organizing maps and hierarchical, self-organizing maps plus tree, SOTA trees. So you start developing the tree, but applying self-organizing map and then dividing tree nodes into, within one node, applying single self-organizing map. Splitting the data in the next round, splitting again. Uh, I sort of said planar embedding or multi-dimensional scaling. It takes high-dimensional scale uh, data and tries to embed it. My calendar again. <clears throat> we may want to have the high-dimensional data try to uh, embed it on plane, planar embedding sort of go from high dimensions to two dimensions only. Um, one example is principal component analysis of this. So there are different ways. Uh, this is hierarchical clustering, but this is the, the principal component analysis done on this 10-dimensional data. Uh, so principal component analysis tries to find the axis that is not in 10 dimensions, but now the first axis by which the data is spread out the most. And this becomes the first axis. And then it tries to look at the, what is the next orthogonal axis by which the data is spread out next. And then you have 10 dimensional data, like, like in here, the, the direction could be anywhere in this 10 dimensional space, any direction. Okay. So this is two dimensional, three dimensional, this was artificial data, so you can see how the clusters would be more visual uh, in the PCA. Principal component analysis would plot data without the colors, but you could identify uh, clearly different clusters. In here, principal component analysis, the first principal component. Second, the colors have some, uh, highlight some attributes, and you see that indeed, some of these pink, some of these clinical tumors end up in, actually they end up in here and there and everywhere, but clinical tumors, estrogen receptor positive ones are these blue ones over there. Uh, these are estrogen re receptor negative, some of those are here. Uh, what did I see? Different ways to grow the cells, two-dimensional, three-dimensional ways, so they should end up in different regions. So try, try to analyze, understand uh, what the data looks like. But this is more in the data mining uh, course. Um, Tauno is implementing these kinds of analysis tools uh, just as of state of the art at the moment. 
principal component analysis, but highlighting two types of data so that you can uh, you can just draw the distribution around the blue dots and red dots and principal component analysis allows to map high dimensional data on two dimensions on the first and second principal component uh, okay so let me let me try to slow down in here um, out of all the stuff that I have shown um, do you feel that you sort of understood what I was talking about? Algorithmically speaking. We want to group data somehow, and we propose several different heuristics how to do that. They try to achieve, they start from different thinking, and they apply some heuristic, and then they produce some outputs. Right? It doesn't say that there is one clear winner, one method that is superior to all the others. It just says that there are different ways to think about the data and different algorithms that have their own speed, uh, application areas, um, good and bad uh, things about them, etc. Uh, when, when we talk about clustering, there could be, well, at least you should be able to read somehow these Dendrograms, hierarchical clustering. Um, this one is showing clusters of data where you can see one cluster is, is kind of all the similar uh, items in there, 119 similar profiles. But how this was constructed was slightly different approach. In here, the data is is, uh, I think it was 10 dimensions, and it was 10 days of uh, mouse embryo development from the fertilization day zero, one, two, three, 10 days. Um, and you know what's going to happen first, it's uh, the the egg gets fertilized and then it starts to divide to 2, to 4, to 8, 16, etc. Then it starts to develop axes, the head and the tail, left and right side, outside, inside. The cells start to differentiate yeah, to different types. In the beginning they're all exactly the same. The four, four cells are exactly the similar to each other, right? You could have quadruplets, four kids exactly the same genetic makeup. Each one of those could give you rise to the uh, full kid. Um, and this shows how in different days, like which genes have been active in the days two, three, and four, or only two and three, and then switch off. Sort of the program that starts to switch on and off different activities in the, in the cell. And this is just a kind of Without the clustering, this was done by, by the way that you generate some template. Okay, I want to see this template. Yeah? And then you just try to fetch everything that resembles this template uh, by similarity search. So this is, uh, but it allows you to visualize uh, data, right? So the ones that are switched on or switched off. And then you can start 
ask you, okay, let's understand, try to understand these 122 plus 31 genes, right? The program that is switched on and what is needs to be switched off at the same time. So different type of clustering in here by simple similarity search. Uh, so creating template and searching for similar things. If you understand roughly what the 10 dimensions are, right? From Tay7 to Tay8, maybe not so much changes, right? You understand what the 10 dimensions are. Sometimes you don't. Uh, when, you, when we said that we have 39 dimensional data about the economic development of the countries, um, then how do you know which of those parameters is the most important? Having a king or not? Well, Sweden has a king. Is that a bad for, for the economic development, for example? Uh, so, when you have high dimensional data, then the question starts to be, how to identify those dimensions that are somehow important, or, or looking at the data, from which angle you should sort of like look at the data so that you see some clustering. You don't see clustering from every different angle because it could be hidden from you, right? You have to change the angle to see that clearly there are two different groups. Uh, and the problem is that when you have more and more dimensions, every dimension adds, like Euclidean distance, these are different, this, these two variables are different, the distance pulls them very far apart. The more dimensions you add, the further apart every data point will be from each other. Ultimately, everything will be equally far, far from each other. Right? When you have really high dimensional spaces, it's very hard to see even which ones are. The concept of close or far fades away. Everything is far from each other. And uh, and that sort of brings this curse of dimensionality, but also then you can start asking, okay, but what if we start uh, looking only at subsets of dimensions at one time? Uh, so that uh, in a single dimension, one dimensional maybe you don't observe, two dimensional, one three dimensional, somehow you can look at the three-dimensional cube from different dimensions. Uh, you can do in different dimensions, you can do histograms, sort of, okay, there may be two different uh, clusters in there, two different densities, you could split in there. In here, they are clearly separable if you look at this dimension. Um, in this dimension, dimension B separates the two, right? Dimension A, B, B separates the two, B in here. So looking at different projections of the data uh, and do the clustering on different subspaces. So first split in here, for example, uh, the two blues are together, so we split in there. And now that we have split in there, turns out that dimension C allows us to split the two blues apart from each other. Okay? Somehow try to split the data and keep doing this process. Uh, in here, blue and Two blues would be separated, but red and green is not, right? To separate red and green, maybe you need this dimension, A, right? They are clearly separated in there. So looking at the data from different angles uh, 
may bring out some of the possibilities to do the clustering. Okay, now think of everything that we have tried to learn about clustering. Within the cluster, elements should be similar to each other. One cluster similar, the other cluster similar, but clusters clearly different, different from each other. So how do you apply this on this data? How's this go? How could we say that these these points in here and there are clearly from different clusters? Obviously they are, right? But how do you say that? They are much more similar to each other than like even from there to there. Intuitively you see the shapes of dense regions, right? So if we want to do density-based clustering, then we should have some concept of what is the density in any given region and how to, how to sort of like map the same region, dense region, throughout the entire cluster, right? How do you do that in your brain? So the, for the density-based uh, clustering, the, the, the classical algorithm is dbscan, that defines the, the concept of the density. What is the density? Density is how many points in certain area. Yeah? You can do multidimensional like sphere and count the points in the sphere. In here, just in the circle. Define the distance, count how many in the circle, unit circle. Right? That's the density. So you want to find something that is high density you should somehow set the threshold where is the high density, but it's not high density. Um, and density is dependent on the radius and number of points within the radius, right? And then given this density, you can start saying, is this, is this point in the dense region or not? Looking at the radius around. It is. Is this point in the dense region? No, it's not. Uh, is this one? No, it's not. Is this one? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. How, how do we understand? Is it or not? If it is not dense, but within its neighborhood, there are points that are dense, from dense region, for example, right? If this point is not dense region, but its neighbors are in the dense region, then it's kind of on the border. It is on the border from dense to sparse region. So with this uh, uh, epsilon and number of points or definition of the density, we can actually classify points into core points, which are in dense regions, noise points, which are in the sparse regions, and border points uh, that are, that are uh, not dense, but in the neighborhood, there are dense points, core points. So with this idea, you can do the KD, K-dimensional lookup, 
for every point. In this neighborhood, how many points do I have? If you do the, apply the KD tree or R tree or any of the data structures we look for high dimensional data, do you remember? Do you remember? R3, what was R3? KD3. So we can apply some of the multidimensional data lookup structures and for every point identify the neighborhood, the size of the neighborhood. And then just classify these points, as I said, the dense points, noise points, water points. Or dense regions, this is like in the graph space, but the same uh, dense uh, border, border, and uh, noise. And then you just do this and start labeling the clusters. So all the green are in the dense regions, the reds must be the sparse regions or noise points and the blues must be the water points. So next what is needed is you, you take one of the green, green points and just label everything where you can go from this one as the same cluster as this one. And, and then you take a new point, there is no cluster yet so you map the other cluster in there. It just shows that cluster types, the, the point types, core, border, and noise. And then from this, you can get into this clustering. And it identifies one, two, three, four, five, six clusters in this case. But just having, just having the concept of, of, the, of the density. How, what is the epsilon radius and how many points we call dense or not? Parameters that are you can change. Yeah. I don't get it. Uh, if, if you know which uh, where the border points and which are the noise points, how can you separate them into the different classes? In from yes, from the density. The noise points you will ignore, right? They are So what would you, why would you even use the, the border points? What does it add value? Uh, let me think, I'm not sure exactly. Let me see if, if any, of, any of the algorithms mentions that. Core points. Aha, okay. Eliminate noise points, we get rid of them. And then for core point, if core point has no cluster label yet, then you introduce a new cluster label. Yeah. Then you introduce a new cluster. If you hit the uh, core point that doesn't have the cluster label, then you just introduce a new cluster label. Uh, you go through every... every why, do, why do we do all... Yeah, for every core point, first we find a new label, and now for every, for every point we do this, and then for every point in the epsilon neighborhood of this new uh, point, except it itself, if, that, if those don't have the cluster label, then we uh, label with this, the same label, right? You take a point that does not have the label, you label it, and you label its neighborhood. 
And then you take the next point. If, if it already has a cluster label, hopefully you fetch it from the neighborhood where you just labeled it previously, then you label its neighborhood, and its neighborhood gets mapped over and over again. Uh, what will happen what will happen to the border points is uh, that it doesn't separate between the, the core and border points. It never touches the border points except if you hit it in the neighborhood. Right? And then that's the label you get from here. It only goes through all the core points. I, I, I wonder only in this case if you, if you start from here and you suddenly, well, you, you do it here and suddenly there you would label them differently, and ultimately you would need to merge them together. So in that case, maybe something bad is happening. But if you, if you apply uh, it so that you keep fetching from, the, from those where you have produced a label, you map your label to everywhere where you can map it, and then you fetch a new cluster, uh, new core point, then you, you, you can label that to everywhere where it can be mapped. But, but that's why I'm a little bit jumping over in some of the details because this this is something when the general concept you may vary slightly the details, right? But the point in uh, the the important thing is that for the data like this, we can apply the concept of density throughout the data cloud, yeah, and get clusters of very different shapes out from this. Of course, this was artificial data, and, and you have to demonstrate that it works, right? But when does it work? When does it not work well? You always believe that when the beautiful thing is represented to them, it always works. No, it doesn't work. When does it not work? In the high density places between components or clusters. If there are different, yeah, but if, if it's high density, then everything is high density, then kind of kind of tricky to separate anyway. Right? Yes. Of course, the, the other thing is that you don't know what is the what what is how big the neighborhood should be, what is the correct density parameter, right? You could get everything in a single, or you could get uh, everything as separate. If you are too strict or too flexible, right? it's very hard to know in advance. Maybe then you can uh, fetch the data, look at the average distributions, and set it for the cutoff. Yes. Maybe if there are different high uh, different kind of high density regions. Yeah, exactly. Something like this. Yeah, different densities of the cluster. Because you, you would either put everything in the same, or this is a clearly a, a less dense cluster, so how, how, how do you... Depending on the threshold, you may get everything in the same or everything is separated. It, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't adapt to the density. And in here, you could also see that uh, Minimum points for epsilon distance 9.75, minimum points for epsilon distance 9.92. Very small distance change, and you get 
different results. All of this is now sparse and only one, two, three clusters. Very small difference in distance. How, how on earth can you set that? Right? But that's what's asked from people. Analyze this for us. Right? Uh, okay, uh, you can you can look at all the uh, data points point sorted according to distance to of fourth nearest neighbor. So fourth four is now the uh, region, right? Four points in some epsilon distance, and when you look at the fourth point, then these are uh, these are the uh, dense regions, and suddenly it jumps. And yeah, maybe from these kinds of plots, maybe you can set the, at least the some intelligent cutoff, nine point, where was, where was the cutoff? 975, 992. Nine. Somewhere in here, right? Setting the cutoff in here, somewhere should bring out the, might bring out the nice uh, clusters. Okay, uh, so this is just to show that you can you can actually try to apply this density stuff, and, and of course, uh, this DB scan was what, which year? Did I have that anywhere? No. DB scan 1996. Density based algorithm for discovering clusters in large spatial databases with noise. Uh, of course, in the next 18 years, there must be a lot of follow-up uh, research on this and new, uh, new ideas uh, developed, fine-tuning kind of these ideas. But one that is important, of course, is that when you have data like this, multi-dimensional data, you, you always want to find quickly who are my nearest neighbors. Right? Who are my nearest neighbors? You did the TSP, who are my nearest neighbors? If you have good multidimensional data indexing scheme, then you can do that quick, query quick, like applying KD3 or something like that. It's not trivial task, but you may use some of the existing data structures for that. And then you can see this is environment for developing K-dimensional KDD, uh, KDD applications supported by index structures. Knowledge discovery databases, uh, data mining, doing multidimensional uh, indexing, kind of supported by these multidimensional index structures, so that you can do uh, you can do these kinds of density-based uh, clustering methods applying these uh, index structures. Okay, so we have. Uh, uh, kind of intermediate summary, we, we talk about cluster analysis using similarity. Uh, it can be used for various types of data. We, we looked at the partitioning, hierarchical, density-based methods. You can have some uh, grid-based methods, not sort of divide this data in the grids. Apply some statistical models. If things are not in the clusters, they are outliers, right? So. Doing the good clusters and everything else being a, a noise or outlier may be very useful because in the security, data security, for example, your normal use is from day to day very similar, right? Anything that is outlier is a threat to the network. 
or to your company security. Everything unusual is a threat. So outlier detection can be used in this kind of things. Uh, and you can sort of see, look at the goals of clustering. We have to be scalable to scale for very large data, different types of attributes, arbitrary shaped clusters, minimum expert knowledge on parameters. We have parameters which are very hard to understand even for experts, right? Able to deal with noise. Incremental would mean that when you have new data, then you incrementally can uh, change the clusters and independent of order. In the self-organization map, order definitely defines what is the final output, right? So we just say that we pick in random order, but order definitely has a say. You, you would like to get them independent from, from, from the order. Uh, in real life, high dimensional data is, is a must. There could be other constraints, etc. And for example, we didn't discuss anything about how, use, uh, how useful or usable these clusters are. Just talk about algorithms. Um, once you have achieved some clustering, the next question is, how can you say is it good or bad? You've got some clustering. You have bad k-means, but you don't have a glue. Is it good or bad? Uh, when the clusters are very clear and sharp, you can visualize, for example, the distances within the cluster between every different data point, right? So this is n points by n points, the small distances in, in red, or similarities high, red. You can see the clusters are very visible in this all against all distance matrix that has been sorted by the uh, by the cluster order. Right? This is very sharp clustering. You can clearly see three clusters. If your data is thousand dimensional, you, maybe you don't see the three clusters in thousand dimensions, but at least you can do this uh, distance uh, to distance comparison, right? This is very well clustered data. This one is not, right? So in here, the blue, green, but two blues. So the cluster, this is a clustering, of course, one cluster, two, and three. But the distinction between the clusters is not so sharp by observing just at this, uh, uh, this distance uh, matrix in here. You apply different clustering into three clusters, one, two, and three, you get, again, random, they're not so crisp. This data of the DB scan produces this kind of clustering, uh, the distance matrix. So some of these are sharp and crystal clear within the clusters. The, well, I don't know exactly what is the order in here. There is no color coding of the order in here, unfortunately. But uh, um, some clusters are nice, some are not so nice, and, and then within the cluster you could have some that are more similar within the cluster, but more similar to, to the other cluster. Um, so actually validating the clustering result is, is an entire task on its own. To, to take the clustering result and trying to say 
is this good or bad clustering. Uh, what are kind of the things that you could apply, uh, try in this kind of thing? For example, what happens if you hide out, say, half of the points? Would you get the same kind of clusters? If you would just do some of the data. If you take part of the data and you get very different clusters, then the clustering is not very stable. Or if you do one run and the other and third run, if you every time get different clusters, then it's not very stable. Right? You can do these kinds of uh, uh, tricks, for example. Okay, um, these slides on the graphs I already showed. So going from the graph, uh, hairball structures into these subgraphs, identifying subgraphs where you have connections. In here, the dense regions, and we looked at the you remember this clustering method. We, I had the slides in the, when we talked about the graphs. In random walk. In random walk, you start walking randomly and strengthening the uh, some walks, uh, sort of bringing out the clusters where you randomly would walk often within this cluster. So if you walk randomly, then this becomes a cluster and then you separate it from the rest. Uh, so this Monte Carlo, uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo method um, starts from this graph, walks uh, arbitrarily and strengthens the frequently visited edges and weakens the, the infre infrequently visited ones and applies this in, in, in phases so that at the end we have individual clusters from the original graph. Uh, and that was only this that was only this tight loop of uh, doing one step of the of the random box by matrix multiplication and then strengthening and weakening the edges. So doing this one hop uh, expansion, then inflating or sort of changing the uh, data edges and then asking what is the difference between previous and new step. If the difference is large, then you keep doing until the difference uh, fades away. Okay. Yeah, so this is, uh, um, this was the clustering and uh, innerly from Tallinn Tech, um, and in Tallinn Tech there is, there is a group of people who have been doing kind of clustering, but what they do is not clustering, but rather what they call seriation or matrix reordering. And uh, we, we looked at this graph, right? In this course, didn't we? Yeah. So this is a graph where you can represent from 1 to 3, 3 to 4. Well, basically the question was um, which node would be somehow important in this graph. And, uh, and then kind of, if this is a love relationship, then being in here, in the being loved but loving somebody else is sort of bad position, but being selling the goods between companies, purchasing and selling, controlling the entire supply chain is good position to be, right? Um, the, 
the relationship between the graph and the matrix is quite obvious, right? This is adjacency matrix. From 1, you have links to 1, 3, and 7. From 1, you have links to itself. Every node has the self loop, and then have the links to 3 and 7. And then the, in the clustering, we would call which nodes are similar so that they have the links out to the same nodes, right? What is, what is similar to uh, node 1? Node 4 is relatively similar. 1 and 4 are relatively similar because 4 has links to 7 and 1. Uh, So this figure kind of illustrates the separation as well. So it's not only the clustering, getting clusters of different columns, but also ordering them within the cluster, right? giving them some ordering within the data, or ordering in here. If this is the data, then clusters would be, four clusters would look like this, four, three, two, and two in these clusters, but seriation would somehow sort them on the single axis. <coughs> so the gradual move from gray green to gray blue, blue, gray red, red red, red red, red red, red blue, blue blue, is kind of gradual change. It is not achieved by a single sort, because there is no single parameter on which you can sort. There are multiple at attributes, and what, we, what you call is somehow reorder the elements so that you get somehow a gradual change in data. We can talk about objects and attributes, countries, countries, this is like uh, uh, two-way matrices, countries to countries, for example, country A sells to country, uh, first country sells to country, last country, etc., some binary parameters, or objects and attributes, either the distance matrix analog or the data and attributes analog, so we have these binary matrices, and in both cases we could ask what would be the reordering in here, if you, if you reorder in here, you have applied the same order in, in there, or you reorder in here or in there. So, describing different towns by defining do they have the high school, do they have agricultural cooper cooperative uh, shop, railway station, veterinary, which ones do not have the doctor? So this is a matrix, but when you reorder, you get this kind of gradual change. No water supply, villages in 14 and 10. 14 and 10. Um, 14 and 10 in here. Uh, this it has one room school, no doctor, no water supply. So these are the poor villages, villages, uh, small towns, larger cities. So this is a gradual ordering, reordering of rows and columns.
It's kind of like clustering, but what we call, uh, ask from here is, is reordering. When you look at the hierarchy of the clustering, we did the clustering, but then always throw the map, heat map, as if we just reorder the rows. So in here, this is the question. Take the data and try to reorder the rows and possibly columns to identify the data, what is, what is the structure within the data. The same data could be reordered in different ways. So uh, let me see this one yeah, in here. This one is this one. So you can do it in this way. And the color is just arbitrary to show what is the, which points get together in here. You, you could apply one heuristic, get this one. This was manual, Bertin's manual reordering. He manually did this analysis. Yeah. But you could apply different algorithms that try to achieve kind of reordering or clustering. And that's what these cluster, clustering end results would look like. The natural ordering appears in some areas more than the others. And one of those is, for example, archaeology. You have the archaeological excavations, and you observe the, the, the copper pieces and the pottery and the different items. Uh, sometimes you observe the bone and rock and no copper. So copper appears later in time. So gradually you have one situation and then you start adding different types of features like maybe coins were introduced at some point. Right? So there is sort of like time ordering. One site may have different observations, what you have observed. And your question is how do you order them in time? Which thing items appear, disappear and get advanced, right? So the ordering may have uh, this kind of time, uh, time uh, natural time ordering. So archaeological samples, if you have pottery bone spears, pottery copper spears, glass copper, steel copper pottery, if, uh, this one doesn't have the copper, right? Uh, locations may have, you, you think, of course, now you can do the timing by the, by the whatever the chemical measurements of looking at the radiation uh, halving, but but you could just by by these attributes you could do ordering of the older ones. Then what is the similarity of pottery, spears, but bones have been replaced by copper. And then the steel appears. Spears disappear, steel appears, and then glass appears. Uh, we looked at hierarchical clustering, but you never asked what happens, why do we present one higher than the other, right? At every point you can reorder. At every point you can reorder, and there is no obvious way why one should be higher than the other. If you would apply on top of this reordering that maximizes the coherence in the data, you would get this output. 
just hierarchical clustering and applying serviation on top of that. So that almost like your minimum shortest traveling salesman problem becomes true. It's sort of like changes from one to the next are minimized. And you may get different output. So you do hierarchical and then apply something extra on top of the hierarchy to get the serviation done. This is objects and attributes. You can compare objects to objects, like similarity matrix. Uh, based on that, you can do the hierarchical clustering or similarity matrix between the columns to columns. So you can do clustering of the rows and clustering of the columns based on these two similarity matrices. What is in the data in here? Um, you know multiple clustering algorithms. You can simulate them in your head, or you can just look at that data and tell me exactly what is on the picture. Anybody yet? Anybody heard of the Pareto principle? Or winner takes it all? Or 20% 20 20 produce 80% of the value? That is the Pareto principle. 20% always does 80% of the work. Does it look like that? That is the value of the reordering of the matrices, sorting them by, by some criteria. Trying to minimize the differences from between rows in here. And for the for the reordering, you could say, okay, maybe in this case you could apply a traveling salesman problem because the small differences. This is the shortest part, maybe, through all. Maybe you want to apply some different measure to maximize the blocks of blacks and blocks of whites, so that everything around the black should be black, everything around the white should be white. So you could start applying different goodness measures on the data, and then trying to apply different heuristics to achieve some kind of data analysis. Um, so, this kind of data analysis has occurred from, for the last more than 100 years. Right? So going from different original data, in here you can see the little hands doing the manual reordering of archaeological sites. Okay. Um, applying different uh, kind of methods uh, kind of to try to visualize data and uh, in the data mining visualization school, there could be many different names for the same kind of stuff, etc. Uh, so, <clears throat> uh, 
I can finish off with a small um, archaeological anecdote. Um, in Greece, archaeology archaeologists dig and find a piece of copper, of course. And then they say, okay, we have copper fibers. In England, they dig, keep digging, dig, and find a piece of glass. Oh, but we have fiber optics. In Estonia, the archaeologists dig, don't find anything, don't find anything, keep digging, keep digging, keep digging, they don't find anything. Aha! Wi-Fi was first here. Unless you have questions, then off you go.